0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of our foray into the world of podcasts with The Broadcast. I'm your host David Brooks, I'm Technical Director at Broadstone and I'm joined by my fellow host Rachel Meadows who's Head of Proposition. Morning Rachel.
1: Morning Dave.
0: For our first series we're going to do six monthly episodes looking at pensions and savings issues impacting on trustees, employers and members. Each month we'll review any topical news and issues, and then have a guest for a closer look at a particular area of pensions and savings. This week, we are joined by our colleague, Mark Devereaux. who will join us later to talk about ESG. But before that, we'll look at some recent news stories that caught our eye. We're going to look at auto enrolment. Um, Scottish Widows have conducted some research focusing on low earners with multiple jobs, and the concern that they're missing out on up to 76 million a year employer contributions. The issue is that workers who earn less than £10,000 a year in a single job are not eligible for auto-enrolment, even if in aggregate they earn above this threshold. Around half of multi-job holders were not enrolled. It is isn't well known that workers earning between £6,240, which is the lower earnings limit, and £10,000, can still opt into their company pension and the employer must contribute at least 3% in line with the auto-enrolment rules. There are real concerns that employers are not clear on the rules. Rachel, what are your thoughts on this?
1: I think the concerns are probably well founded because the rules in this area are fairly complex for employers to navigate especially if they've got lots of part-time workers, and especially for employers who maybe have only started employing lots of part-time workers over the last 18 months. So we have seen a real increase in multi-jobbers during the course of the pandemic. And this is an issue that impacts disproportionately on lower earners and also impacts on women. So this is an issue that actually exacerbates the gender pay gap. I think one of the bigger issues with these rules isn't necessarily though that employers aren't clear of them it's that one of the big successes of auto enrollment relies on inertia it relies on the fact that employees don't have to take any action in order to be put into a pension and to start to save and for their employers to contribute for them anything that requires multi-jobbers and low earners to have to take action to opt into the pension scheme naturally reduces the amount of staff that are going to actually take action even if they knew about this are they actually going to act
0: yeah that is the the big problem isn't it yeah so i think that that inertia point is the is the big one um so what can employers do to encourage people or to advise people that the scheme is there
1: so A lot of this comes back to engagement, and part of the auto-enrolment legislation sets out some statutory communications that employers have got to issue to staff when they uh, either start employment or when they become eligible for auto-enrolment. And it's the statutory communication that they receive when they first join employment that tells an employee about their right to opt into the pension scheme. Now, there are a couple of problems with this. The first is that employees of any kind often receive a letter about pensions and, you know, completely switch off. You know, people don't find pensions easy to engage with. They have a natural barrier and think it's complicated and they put it to one side to deal with later and they never come back to it. The other risk with only communicating to staff at the point when they join employment though is that commonly at that point, they've got quite a lot of other paperwork to deal with. And they've got quite a lot of other issues that they're trying to sort out being newly into a a role with their employer. And often there are things that are much more pressing on a day to day basis. So making sure that payroll have got the right bank details so that they can pay you and you can pay your bills. And this means that the statutory communications that are required probably don't go far enough. There's probably some extra work that employers can do on a voluntary basis to make sure that staff um, are aware of the right to opt in after they've started. Of course, re-enrollment every three years does aim to address this problem. But three years is a long time. If you're a multi-jobber who hasn't acted to opt into the pension scheme and you're only going to be re-enrolled in or given the choice to opt back into the pension scheme uh, in three years time, that, that's a long time and a big savings gap.
0: Um, the government also reviewed the way Autorrent was working back in 2017, and they seem to have procrastinated on doing anything about this. Um, surely some of those things that they were looking at reducing the age to 18 and, and getting contributions from that first pound. Would that help this situation?
1: It would. So, yes, absolutely. Having auto-enrolment from your very first pound of earnings would be massively helpful because it would take away that whole issue of relying on employees to to take action to go into the pension scheme. Reducing the minimum age to age 18 would also be really helpful, but it would be even more helpful if they just scrapped the minimum and maximum ages altogether. And actually, just as soon as you're on a payroll, you are auto-enrolled into a pension scheme. Your age shouldn't necessarily be linked to this. So if you left school at 16, went straight into the workforce, which still just happened, you know, for some, some staff, mm. you wouldn't want to miss those years of saving into your pension. And also from an employee point of view, you don't really want to get used to having a certain level of earnings that then suddenly at, at 22 or 18 under the new proposals would then reduce because you start contributing into a pension. It's easier to learn to live between you, live within your means from outset
0: yeah absolutely um and what about other areas we've heard people talking about issues for low income workers and and a tax issue a tax anomaly are you able to talk us through that
1: yes so this is an issue um, that predominantly affects uh, lower earners who are in certain types of uh, workplace pension scheme that um, provide tax relief by the gross pay method so what happens with those pension schemes is that your pension contributions deducted before you pay tax and it's paid into the pension scheme and the scheme doesn't add any tax relief because it assumes that you've already had that through payroll now the issue for lower earners and the issue if you ought to enroll from your very first pound of earnings is that actually for lower earners you don't pay tax on anything under your personal allowance so in those circumstances, you've actually missed out on having that really valuable tax relief top-up on your pension savings. So one of the necessary things that the government would have to look to improve if they brought in an auto-enrolment from your first pound of earnings is to address that issue of the gross pay, net pay, pension tax relief anomaly.
0: And what is your sense? Do you think the government are going to address this? They've talked about it a few times and they've been asking for cause evidence. I think the last time they asked was, Um, summer 2020, if you've got any sense when they're going to actually make this change and what's stopping them?
1: I I think there are probably a few things stopping them. I think, um, you know, obviously the government's been quite busy with the pandemic, this is one of those changes that uh, is fairly technical and actually it sounds simple in practice, but in, in order to implement these sorts of changes, uh, actually there's quite a lot of detail that we're going to making sure this is done correctly, a lot of change um, to, to government HMRC systems and to pension scheme um, contribution collection methods as well. And in terms of priorities, things like this, don't tend to be pressing issues for the government to deal with because they don't tend to be vote winners. They're not things that people readily understand. They're not things that normal people are putting pressure on the government to address. And so unfortunately they often slip down the agenda.
0: Yeah, no, that's very true. Um, While we're on auto enrolment and before we move on, um, the government have been talking about this again for a long time and they've issued another consultation into simpler statements for um auto enrollment schemes and dc schemes um have you had a chance to look at that and have have any thoughts on that
1: Yes. So anything that makes pension statements simpler is to be welcomed. Uh, I think it's a little bit disingenuous of the government to imply that some of the complexity in terms of pension statements is down to the pensions industry or a desire to put lots of complex jargon uh, into uh, members' annual pension statements. A lot of the complexity is in there because of regulatory requirements and because of pensions jargon that the government's introduced through its own different tax limits and tax thresholds and complicated pension rules. So there's probably uh, a couple of other changes that would be welcomed alongside the call for simpler statements I think an all-round simpler pension saving regime would probably make life a lot easier for pension savers as well
0: <laughs> yeah no I had the same feeling when I was reading it as well I thought the the irony of them asking us to try to to make it shorter I originally thought they were just going to try and legislate for a font size to so just be able to just four font size four please and we'll put it all on two sides
1: Absolutely, but you know let let's let's be clear. It's a good thing. Anything yeah. that calls for a bit more simplicity, it is a really good thing, you know, often for pension savers, the only engagement you have with your pension scheme, you know not not rightly, but is when you get your annual statement, so anything that makes that easier to digest and to understand is is of course to be welcomed,
0: yeah, absolutely,
1: okay, so Dave, there have been two stories in the news around scams. So we've had scams uh, to be included in the financial harms bill, and we've got the new proposed scam rules. So the online safety bill was included in the Queen's speech, but omitted online fraud, which has become a massive issue. There was a great deal of hue and cry amongst the pension profession. However, a subsequent statement by the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, Oliver Dowden, confirms that there will be clauses to address fraud in the bill. Also, new rules for the statutory right to transfer were proposed. So, Dave, are you pleased with the government's move to include help for fraud in online safety?
0: Um, Yes. I mean, I I, I admit to being part of that hue and cry um, when this this online safety bill didn't include anything to do with investment or or online fraud. Because we've seen a massive increase. This is the way scammers are getting at people. If you do a a Google search for anything to do with um, a pension review or pension support, The first three or four will be sponsored ads you know if you're just using google will be sponsored ads taking you to a a free pension review or or something similar or even if you type in trying to get support for the money and pension service or pension wise you'll be taken to a third party website there's nothing to do with pension wise or the money advice service and so these people these scammers are using google paid ads to access people who are just wanting to find out information about their savings and so Yes, there's lots of issues for online safety, no doubt about it. But it was crazy that that um, something to do with, with fraud wouldn't be included. The, the worrying thing is, is that the, the words that, that Oliver Dowden used um, well, well, felt like a bit of a, a sop really to say that we will in- include some clauses. Because Stephen Timms, who is the um, chair of the Work and Pension Select Committee, was in Parliament yesterday talking about how he... He wanted um, to ensure these clauses were included. I don't think he was particularly reassured by um, Mr. Dowden's words. So I really do hope something substantive goes in there to hold um, people like Google um, and Facebook to account. At the end of the day, they're getting paid for these ads and they're getting paid to effectively advertise scammers or people that aren't necessarily working in in members' best interests. So, yeah, I'm pleased to see we've got movement, but um, I'm hopeful we get something decent.
1: Absolutely. And it's been an even bigger issue over the last 18 months, hasn't Mm. it? We have seen the prevalence of scams really increase during the course of the pandemic. So generally, what is the government proposing to combat scams?
0: Um, So we had some draft uh, legislation that came out uh, last week. And so they're talking about addressing a really addressing a particular type of of scam. Um, And this is where a scammer will set up a thing called a small self-administered scheme, which are legitimate pension arrangements, but they'll use this as a shell really for, for their fraudulent activity by setting up a, a dormant company as a sponsoring employer of this occupational pension scheme, and then use that to to fraud the member out of their pension money when they transfer into it. So what they've done is they've, they've created four new criteria for when the legal right to a transfer will exist. And, um, Firstly, they've created a safe list, which I might come back to in a moment, but they've created a safe list of, of schemes. That if it's going to one of those, so it's an FCA-registered pension scheme um, or a master trust or, or one of those types of arrangements, then it's fine then it can go ahead. If it's not and there is this suspected um, scam virus SAS, then the, the member will have to also prove that they work for that employer. So they'll need to provide copies of uh, bank statements or payslips, P60s, those sorts of things, so they're actually employed. And the member and the employer will also have to demonstrate where they're paying money into the pension scheme, again, to make sure there's a bona fide link between the member and the employer and the employer in the pension scheme. So this is all above board. If the scheme is based overseas, so I think called a ops, then the member will need to demonstrate that they're resident in that country. We don't know much about how the member will do that yet, but we'll find out later on. And um, there's a subsequent step as well, a further condition to do with red and amber flags. If there are any red flags, then the, the, the statutory right to transfer stops and you can't do it. If there are amber flags, then the, the member needs to go and take um, advice or guidance from the Money and Pension Service on their scam guidance, which I don't think actually exists yet, but the scam guidance will exist. Um, so it sounds – sorry, gone.
1: I was just going to say, this all sounds so difficult and complex for trustees to try to navigate.
0: Yeah, it's going to add quite a lot more because trustees and schemes are doing a lot of work already on their own due diligence to ensure that the transfer that the member wants to make is is a legitimate transfer and the member isn't going to be, be scammed out of their money on the other side. And while this is meant to help, because this is meant to give the power to trustees to say, no, we don't want to make this transfer and we don't have to because one of these Um, conditions hasn't been satisfied. But I think the problem will be is where a scheme might be on the safe list for whatever reason, because the the safe list is quite broad, um, is on the safe list. But yet through their own due diligence, there might be some of these red flags, the red flags around being cold called, being pressured for a quick sale. um, There's an incentive to the transfer, things like this. And these red flags might exist, but still trustees won't be able to to stop the transfer and um the transfers will still happen so, which is a concern so i, I do th- i do accept this is tricky and i'm conscious about being a naysayer to everything the government ever says but i do think this isn't really going to solve a lot of the problems a lot of the problems are investments within pension arrangements or people bouncing in and out of pension schemes and this won't necessarily won't necessarily stop that so i'm a bit a bit concerned i will just add and i know we're probably going on about this a little bit too long, but I will just add that um, the PMI, when they were asked to comment, they've suggested that the statutory right to transfer should be taken away completely, Um, which did make me raise my eyebrows. Um, And I do think they've kind of got a point, but uh, that would be quite a a step to take um, for anyone to take, any government to take, especially to take away that statutory right to transfer. and put the onus on the member to prove that, presumably prove that the, uh, the transfer is bona fide. But but yeah, this is this is going to be an interesting area. It's only a consultation, so we'll see what comes through when people respond. Okay, we're now joined by uh, Mark Devereaux, who's Head of Investment Consulting here at Broadstone. Welcome, Mark.
2: Hi, Dave. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Uh, good stuff. Um, we're going to talk about ESG with you. Um, we can't move without reading about ESG at the moment. Uh, the government or regulatory initiatives, even MPs on select committees. We've had the Treasury Select Committee, the pensions working you know, working pension select committee, layering on requirements to, to schemes. It seems to be a never-ending, um, I don't know what the word is, waterfall of things. That's nicer than, a, you know, an avalanche, but a waterfall of things coming down the line. It's actually becoming, I would say, slightly overwhelming about what pension schemes, um, both DC and DB, are going to have to do to comply with all this. So we thought we'd get you on and you can help us navigate our way through this. So if you're trying to just give us, just take a few moments just to give us a bit of a where are we what have we had to do over the last time because a lot of trustees will remember you know recent times doing implementation statements and putting things in their sips and all this kind of stuff so kind of where are we and and, and where do you think we're going
2: well thanks dave yeah <laughs> overwhelming is, is is probably not a bad word to describe it isn't it um so um yeah let, let's just sort of take a step back and think about um, what trustees have had to um, had to do and face over the last couple of years and, and probably the biggest area that trustees will have noticed is in the area of their statement um, their statements of investment principles um, so, so new regulations requiring trustees to, to consider um, and formulate policies in areas like voting um, their approach to financial risks including climate change um, the consideration of non-financial risks and also um, the, the, their policy on engaging with members to gauge their views and how they feed in um, to their investment thinking. Um, that's just to name a few. We've also had the, the implementation statements which effectively look back at how um, the trustees have, have implemented um, their investment strategy and how consistent that's been with those, those policies and their SIPs. Um, so that's that's where we are, that's, um, that's, that's been the story over the last couple of years, but as you mentioned, um, the story doesn't end there um, and I think it's probably just worth reflecting in terms of um, what, what we're looking at over the, the months and years ahead um, to reflect on some, some comments that, that have come from the pensions regulator um, and also the pensions minister, Guy Opperman, um, who, who has some pretty strong views in this area. Um, So just just reflecting on what the regulator said, and this was when the the pension scheme bill was still a bill, um, they said that that will enable regulations to be made, which requires trustees to consider um, in depth how climate change will will affect their pension schemes um, and their investments. um, And there will be a need to publish information relating to the effects of climate change on, on, on schemes. Um, and in conclusion, they said there's no stepping away um, from the question raised by climate change. Um, you know, these questions are integral to good scheme governance. They can't be ducked. Um, and in their view, given the long term nature of pension schemes, climate change is a fundamental um, consideration um, that trustees just need to factor in. I'll come back to, um, to some of the details of the pensions bill and what that means for the pension scheme trustees. But it's worth just reflecting, I think, um, on a slightly different area, um, which, is, which is voting um, and Guy Opperman, the pension minister, um, is less than impressed with what he's, he's been seeing in, in, in statements of investment principles. So his view is that, um, in general, voting policies need to improve. Um, and his words are that we urgently need to call time on SIP statements like we leave it all to our farm managers. Um, so that's his view. Um so what's he done about that? Well he set up a task force to look at essentially what what barriers exist um and what, what needs to be done about those barriers. Um and in essence what he what he's tasked that task force to do is to come up with measures um which ensure the convergence of, of asset managers' approaches uh to policy on voting and, and the execution of those um with trustees' own policies and preferences. Um so I think we can certainly expect to see much more come down the line on, on voting. Um, but just going back to, um, to, to, to what we do know which is um, which, which has now become uh, regulations for schemes um, on climate change uh, and the disclosures in relation to climate change. So this this is really acting on the recommendations of the task force on, on climate related financial disclosures. And what this means is trustees will be um, expected to undertake um, and assess impact and scenario analysis on their investment arrangements, considering things like emissions. These these assessments will need to be carried out and included in, in what they call a climate risk management report, um, and that report will, a bit like CIPSAR currently, will need to be published and made available online, um, so quite a lot of work um, involved um, in terms of making sure schemes are compliant with these new regulations. In terms of who, who, who that impacts, well, it's only the very largest schemes um, that are subject to those new regulations to begin with. So they come into force with effect from uh, the 1st of October this year, schemes with assets over £5 billion. Um, October next year, um, schemes with assets of over, over a £1 billion pounds, um, will then be included. Um, and the expectation is that the other schemes will have to fall in, in line. Um, later down the line. So that's something else I think that, that all scheme trustees will need to consider at some point, depending on their size. Um, so that's just a, a few of the areas. Um, there, are, there are many more. Um, so I, th- I think it's fair to say, Dave, that uh, there's there's lots coming.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it feels like a, quite a steep learning curve for for trustees. So, you know, this is, it feels like it's going further away from sort of traditional... You know, if you're looking at your investment manager or you're looking at your risk, this is a whole other area that trustees are going to have to learn and understand. And it isn't just investments, is it? I mean, I think you were talking about, you know, sort of wider risks and governance. It's, it's not just something up till now it's been, well, where's your money, where, you, where are your assets? It's much more than that, isn't it?
2: It, it, it is much more, more than that, Dave. And I, I think, you know, climate, climate risk is it should be viewed as a risk just like any other investment risk. Um, you know, and arguably it should feature on your risk register. Um, and it should be factored in when you're, you're looking at investment strategy decisions. Um, so yes, I, I I think it is becoming more embedded into, into general investment thinking. Um, and knowledge and understanding is, is, is a crucially important part. Um, for all trustees to get comfortable with, with what the regulatory landscape looks like, but to, to be able to sort of develop those those beliefs and policies and put them into action, knowledge and understanding has to be, I think, the first crucial step.
1: Is there a knowledge and engagement issue for sponsoring employers as well when they're considering their own corporate social responsibility policies um, and how the investment actions of their pension scheme might interact with what they're trying to achieve as a business?
2: Yeah, I think very much so, um, Rachel, and, and certainly from experience, some corporates are actually further down the line than, than our, our trustee. Um, Clients in in thinking about formulating that strategy. Um, so so some some corporates, for example, have set um, net zero carbon targets, um, quite aggressive ones in some cases, um, and that hasn't translated, I don't think, through to the thinking in the pension schemes. So certainly part of the the stage where where trustees um, need to develop their thoughts and their beliefs. Um, that that needs, I think, to factor in the Views um, and any strategies or policies that the corporate has put in place, as as well of course as as as, as seeking input from from the employee um, the employee base um, and the members of the schemes.
1: Well, that takes us on to a really interesting area, doesn't it, when we're looking at member engagement? Because I suppose there are two angles to con- considering member engagement in this area. The first is taking members views and what they might think and how they might want to invest into account but is there an education piece that needs to take place with a lot of pension scheme membership here before they can actually formulate a view and make those sorts of statements
2: yeah i, th- I think that's probably right rachel um, I, and i suppose all the while i've been working in the industry um efforts have been made to to improve the level of engagement with members and i think some schemes have had more success than other, but generally, probably the levels of engagement aren't as high as as, as schemes would like. Um, I, I, I would view the angle of ESG to be another way to try and increase that level of engagement. Um, and, and certainly, DC schemes, if if we focus in on those, that there are now probably quite a number of different generations of, of members in those schemes. Um, some of those generations are perhaps more motivated by ESG. Um, considerations than others so it seems to me like it's um it's, it's another thread of that engagement um and 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 it's it, it, it's certainly interesting i think to to consider that those multi-generational views and um and and to take those in, in, into account when you're formulating um those those policies and beliefs and ultimately translating them into the investments that you make available to members
0: sounds like a massive challenge for a trustee board to take take the views of those members and turn them into something when there could be disparate views, people focusing more on returns rather than the ethical or environmental impact. You know, I want more money in my pension, you know, is to what extent our trustees is going to be able to actually influence what happens because isn't it just not good governance? You know, is not, should a fund manager not be taking these things into account anyway? You know, if we're talking about, you know, wh- where they put their money, where they're investing is you know, there's long been the view that if companies are run better you know, they treat their staff better they're more productive if they're you know more socially aware um if they obviously if they're geared up for the future of climate change then they're going to be more profitable for longer as well so to what extent are we looking at the wrong sometimes i feel like we're looking at the wrong side of the coin we should just be focusing on the fund managers and and society and saying look you know you guys should be investing and in, in companies that are going to make money because they're already doing this stuff or forcing them to do it
2: yeah, um, I mean it's a good it's a good point it's a good point, Dave. And the investment managers should be taking into account ESG factors as, as part of their investment process because ESG factors give rise to risks and that can impact um, the the return and the, the financial success or otherwise of the investing companies. Um, so it should very much be, be ingrained already. Um, I think what, what what you mentioned there is quite interesting in that there are a whole plethora of different solutions which are um, which are available and targeting slightly different things um, though it's quite tempting I think sometimes to jump to the solution without having sort of identified what it is you're, you're trying to solve um, so I would I would suggest that to try and make life simple and straightforward trustees to cut through this you start with that knowledge and understanding really make sure you understand what the obligations are on you as trustees understand all of the various threads of the E, the S and the G and identify what's really important to you. Work with the employer, work with your membership to formulate those views and beliefs and then turn them into policies. If there's a consensus view that emerges, you know, turn them into a policy, get it written into the SIP and then think about the solution stage. So what what type of, of manager structure, what type of investment strategy is going to best meet um, our requirements in terms of those those policies that we've written. And then the final thread to this is really monitoring, making sure that actually what the manager is doing is delivering against those, those policies. So I think, I think, yeah, it's it's, it's tempting to jump to that solution. But the, there there is such a wide range of solutions. You've really got to do that, that pre-work to get to narrowing down the, the universe that sounds
1: like a really sensible process to go through and you'd imagine that by going through that process you help to resolve one of the early issues of esg or the challenges of esg in that it's often just been confused with ethical investing
2: yes um (laughs) which is which is potentially a gray area in 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 certain aspects and and something we're actually we're actually seeing so so we, we we have clients um that have invested in ethical strategies for quite a while. And only this week, actually, we've been approached by one of the managers of those ethical strategies. Just to give you um, the context here, the ethical strategy has exclusions um, on things like um, tobacco, alcohol, gambling. So the the client's decided that there there are certain investments which which are in the no camp um, and the strategy is designed effectively to screen out or exclude those types of things. Um, but the manager is now consulting with um, the client on extending that list of exclusions to include fossil fuels. So, um, very much a climate related theme. Um, and, um, you yeah, know, very difficult, I think, to distinguish whether that's an ethical consideration or, or whether that's something else. Um, so, yeah, I think the, 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 there is this grey area, and we'll, I think I suspect that we'll continue to, to see. Pilot-related ESG type issues straying into those ethical issues.
1: And just coming on issues, to yeah. buzzword, from ethical onto greenwashing, to what extent do you perceive that greenwashing is a real issue when we've got carbon neutral, net carbon zero, actual carbon zero? How much is greenwashing an issue?
2: Yeah, it, it, it is an issue actually, and there's there's some good analysis um, that's that's available on, on on things like green greenwashing. Um, yeah, and, and just to take take a step back and think about what greenwashing is, I, I think it's a, it effectively a fund or a strategy that has um, is labelled with green credentials, but when you actually sort of dive into the detail, sort of things that that fund invests in, maybe not be so so green um, and might be counter to um, an investor's expectations at the outset. Um, but I think there's lots of examples of, of this so-called greenwashing. I think the key, the key, Rachel, really is to make sure that the clients, potential investors do the due diligence, make sure they, they fully understand um, how a strategy works, make sure that ultimately the exposures that they'll, that they will eventually end up with in that fund meet their, their requirements, um, and they're not subject to this, this so called greenwashing.
0: That was really useful. I think the, the the key pit, you know, was, was how the trustees can, can, made their way through this. I don't know if you had any closing comments on how, how we're going to support clients or how you you're seeing us doing that.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's absolutely key Dave. As you say, helping, helping our clients sort of navigate what is, what, what, what could be potentially a very overwhelming area. Um, yeah, I think stick with a simple process. Um, yeah, we, we've devised five steps starting with that knowledge and understanding and uh, moving on to sort of then developing the beliefs, translating them into policies, and then thinking about the sorts of solutions at the implementation stage, and then monitoring. It's, it's not a set and forget, it's a continuous cycle, a bit like investment strategy is. And um, so I think my advice would be, there's lots coming down the line. So be as prepared as you can, try to get ESG onto your agendas sooner rather than later. Yeah. And ask your advisors to, to help you through it. There's a lot to get through, you know, the earlier you start, I think the better prepared you'll be.
1: Yeah, thank you very much
0: thanks nice
1: right, so nice. and finally bringing us on to busting pension myths so Dave what's our myth of the month
0: <laughs> our myth of the month is um, uh, the state pension won't exist when I get there so just as way a little bit of background the reason why we're doing this myth of the month is I did a tweet I'm quite into doing things on Twitter about pensions and things and I just asked a innocent question about what people's favorite pension myth is and as far as the pension world goes, anyway, I went viral. It feels like I went viral, had like 50 odd replies. So I had loads. So we've got quite, we sort of decided we'll stick a, a myth of the month into our, into our little chat and we'll just deal with one. So yeah, the first up is the state pension won't exist when I get there, which I know we have both heard before, Rachel. So
1: we we've heard that many times before.
0: <laughs> what do you think?
1: Well, Uh, I I think it will be there. I think the biggest things that are under threat with the state pension are the level that it will be paid at. Uh, We often get challenged about, you know, the state pension will be means tested by the time I get there. Well, you know, maybe, probably not is my feeling, but maybe. I think it's certainly in real terms will be worth less. I think the biggest thing from my perspective, especially for DC savers, is lack of control over the state pension. So we've already seen state pension age's change quite a bit over recent years. We saw women's state pension age equalised with men's, and then we've seen everyone's state pension age increase from 65 to potentially 68, uh, depending on your age. So I think the state pension age, the age at which you start to receive that benefit, is fair game as far as the government's concerned. And even the language that they talk about state pension age these days in pension uh, forecasts for the state pension is much, much looser than it has been in the past. So for me, the takeaway is it probably will be there, but if you want any choice and control over the timing of when you retire, it's back to the onus being on you and your own saving. Make sure you've got enough saved in your own pot to exercise that control.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I don't think the state pension will go. I mean, just for the basic that I don't think the government would want to have people who haven't saved to have nothing. There's always going to be a base level of income that people will need when they can cease to work. And like, like you, I believe the age will go up, will continue to steadily rise. I don't think we'll see massive rises, but I think it will steadily go up over the next, um, few years beyond what's already been, been stated. Um, because it's, it is aimed to be there for people when you're no longer being productive, you know, for society. And it was set at 65 a very long time ago, and we are living longer lives and longer, healthier lives. So I think it will, there'll be some kind of connection with, with how people are living longer, um, healthier lives as well. So, and I think what well, the, the biggest challenge for the government isn't necessarily state pension in any way. I, I do think, and it's not pensions, is, but what they're going to do with social care, because that's going to be something they'll need to, to address. And the government have said repeatedly they're going to address it. And it's been in the long grass for, for years and years and years and looks well settled there, but that's going to be the bigger challenge. So I think we can Absolutely. bust that
1: myth. <laughs> and it is a big vote winning and vote losing issues for governments, yeah. aren't they?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, taking away the state pension of all your elderly voters, that's not going to help anybody. And we know there's a there's a lot of elderly people, you know, long may that continue, but that is expensive and, and has political issues. So, yeah. It'll be here. Don't worry. Myth busted. We we, we should have a little sound effect. (laughs) We should. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So that about wraps up for today's session. So I'd just like to thank uh, Mark for coming along um, and talking to us about ESG. Um, And Rachel, thanks for coming along. (laughs) Thank you, Dave. Um, So we're going to have another one of these in a month's time. We'll have more news, more things have happened. There's always something happening in pensions. So I'm sure we'll think of something to talk about. And we've got a, a little list of, of topics to, to go over. So we don't know exactly what it'll be yet, but we'll find another expert to send a little bit more time with to focus on one particular area of, of pensions and savings. So thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it. Any feedback or any thoughts on what we should discuss in the future, do let us know. Um, otherwise, goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Okay, thanks.